0: Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Good to see everyone. And I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Land Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our Air Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom congregation. And uh, the uh, we've got some exciting things going on uh, this year. Uh, I hope you've been able to see the Monty and Eddie uh, worldwide update that we did. Uh, to tell you about things we're anticipating for this year. We're very excited about things happening. But as we're here for Shabbat, I'm excited about Shabbat too. Amen? Isn't our God good? Amen. All right, a couple of quick announcements uh, for some things coming up uh, here very shortly. Here in February, uh, it will be on um, the AHC channel uh, through your cable services and so forth. February 19, they're going to broadcast a program that night. It's part of a series called How the World Ends. That particular program is called Biblical Armageddon. And Lionel Lamb Ministries and several brethren associated with Lionel Lamb are featured in that program. I encourage you to check that out. Again, the AHC channel. And if you're someplace not familiar with that, just log into uh, ahctv.com. And look and see where it's broadcast in your and what time frame it will be. But our understanding is it will be broadcast worldwide February 19th uh, during that day over the various channels for AHC. So I encourage you to check that out. That's coming up very quickly. Uh, Later in the year, coming into June uh, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th is the weekend of the Feast of Weeks. And uh, that's seven Sabbaths after the Passover. Uh, and we are going to be hosting a Shavuot conference here in Norman, inviting the brethren that would like to come for some great teaching that weekend with several teachers, and also uh, we have a great conference facility uh, set up to house everybody, uh, excellent meals. It will be a wonderful time of worship, and then we can all observe the Feast of Weeks, the one day of the Day of Proclamation together, uh, the biblical feast. That's one of three biblical feasts the Lord commands us to for sure uh, to attend and be a part of it. We'd love to have you come and join us as well for that. So mark your calendars for that weekend for Shavuot, the Shavuot conference. Um, let us see, what else do I have here that I want to mention? Um, the, uh, well, this one's not on my list, but I, I just want to make a comment uh, to everybody. We've received a series of encouraging notes, thank you notes, things like that about the broadcast, the new format of the broadcast. I just want to acknowledge everybody. Thank you for the kind words that have been shared. Every one of them are encouraging to us for that, to give us that that feedback. And we're pleased to do this. We really are. And when people respond to us, it's particularly encouraging to us. So I just want to say thank you to everybody. For that thank you obviously for your financial support your prayers for uh, the ministry and all that's going on all right Um, oh oh that's right men's prayer breakfast this weekend Sunday for all of the men that are local Uh, we'll look forward to seeing all the guys will come together and pray thank you Joe for reminding me of that all right I think we're ready to start Sabbath so Shabbat
1: Shalom Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath.
2: Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Ah, sher kedashanu, bevetsvotav, lehad, Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us the issue of the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch atah Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei prehagafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. One beautiful bread. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch at Eloheinu melech haolam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen.
0: Blessed art thou, O Lord
2: our God, the King of the the universe, who brings
1: brings forth bread from out of the earth. earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless
2: her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father.
3: Amen.
2: Amen. And we do the blessings over the sons. Yeah, that's you.
4: Bless the Lord, who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord, who is praised, for all eternity. Amen. And now the mikmocha. Mikhamocha
5: ba'elim adonai. Mikhamocha ne'edar b'chodesh. No horat ose. Say Who is like you O Lord among the gods? Who is like you? Lord there is none. Else. Bless awesome in praise, do who in wonders, O lord, who is like you,
4: O lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Alam, melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yashua b'mashiach yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Together, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth... And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael,
5: Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear,
4: O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Veiyahafter. Veiyahafter et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavka u'vchol nashicha u'vchol meodecha. Veheyu adaverim haalei arsher nchim ezavka hayom alevavka b'shinantam lavenecha v'tepar dabam peshticha b'yeticha u'velacticha v'rechu shakpika u'vkumika u'kereshatam laot aydecha veheyu latotvot binanecha u'chetatam amazuzo patecha u'visharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
1: Father God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob
6: Abba we magnify you here in this place and we declare that there is no God like you no king like you Father all we can say is that our lives belong to you we honor you, we love you you're our all in all and Father we magnify your holy name here in this place My life belongs to you. All I can say. you everything that we need. So, God, we need you here. Do it again. Visit us here. What we need is you,
3: Marukashim
4: Shabbat Shalom Shabbat Shalom. And thank you for joining us. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 13. And if you hold your finger there at verse 17, it's where our passage will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let me do the blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et Torah To Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha'torah ha'amein. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled B'Shalach which means when he sent or when he let go. And it comes from the first passage, uh, first verse of our uh, Torah portion this week, uh, verse 17 of Exodus 13, where it says, "...where it came to pass, then Pharaoh had let the people go, and God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. For God said, lest perhaps the the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt." So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. This is the time in which the children of Israel are leaving the land of Egypt. Pharaoh had sent them away in the night, told them to leave. They had plundered all the household of of Egypt. And the whole plan is to deliver the children of Israel and return them back to the promised land, right? No. If you remember... God spoke to Moses in the burning bush and he said that they were, he was to bring them to that mountain and to worship them. That, is, that has been a prophecy and that is something that God spoke to Moses. So if the children of Israel had thought that they were simply leaving Egypt and being delivered to the promised land, they would be mistaken. There's a whole greater plan that God has in place. And this has been a continuing narrative in our story of the exodus. If the goal was just to free the children of Israel, then blind the Egyptians and the Israelites should just walk out. But no, God made himself known to the Egyptians so that they might know who he is. All of the plagues, all of the judgments were upon Egypt and upon their gods. And so this, the the whole plan that God has through this exodus is to make himself known. If you look at the... Plagues, and you look at the time in Egypt. God is making Himself known to the Egyptians. It's now at the, and if you remember, all of those plagues and all of those judgments did not fall on the children of Israel when they were in the land of Goshen. So the children of Israel did not see and did not feel the impact of these various judgments. So if you so if you think about that, the children of Israel, they're. All of these things are happening to the Egyptians. They're now being sent out. They're now being free. How much did they really recognize the power of God that that set them free? How much did they see of the judgments? How much did they see of the miracles that, that took place? So what's going to happen here now is the narrative shifts to where now God is going to make himself known to the children of Israel. He's going to make covenant with them when they go to Mount Sinai. They are going to... Enter into a covenant with God. And so God is slowly but surely introducing himself and making himself known to the whole world. First to the Egyptians. And now from this point forward, he's going to be making himself known to the children of Israel. Also in the Passover, when they were uh, when the blood was put on the doorpost and then the covenant of the Passover was formed. Who was truly saved in the Passover? Was it the children of Israel no, if you remember, the judgment was upon the firstborn, the firstborn of every household died if they did not have that the blood on their household. Um, Pharaoh was still alive. So Pharaoh obviously wasn't a firstborn. And there's a little bit there's deeper studies that people have done about that. But if you think about that, the redemption and the, and the salvation of the Passover was to save the firstborn. We still have the entire household, the children of Israel, that are still to be saved, if you will. And here in our passage and here in our Torah portion, we have the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, many people have known of this story, seen it in the movies, seen it take place, that this great epic deliverance of the children of Israel leaving Egypt, going to the sea, being trapped by the sea. Pharaoh hardening his heart and then coming and pursuing them. And we've all seen this story before. But what I want to do is I want to make sure maybe bring out a couple of things that maybe you haven't thought of about that before. Before I go on, let me talk about also our our passage reads and talks about how the children of Israel took the bones of Joseph out of Egypt. This was another fulfillment of Joseph saying, bring my bones up out of Egypt. And so we have it recorded in the scripture for us that the children of Israel and Moses actually did this. This is also kind of a a more important sign because if you remember, who was Joseph to the Egyptians? Joseph was this great man who saved the Egyptians from the worldwide famine. And so for them to take... His body, his bones with them. It's a sign that the children of Israel are leaving nothing behind in Egypt. There will be no reason to return. There will be nothing else happening or taking place. That this is truly a separation between the children of Israel and the Egyptians. It says when they left Egypt, they journeyed to a place called Sukkot. Which is the first place of the journeys in the wilderness. If you read Numbers chapter 33, there's a listing of all the different stages that the children of Israel camped at as they left uh, Egypt. And the first couple of stages are listed here in our portion here. And the very first place they went was to Sukkot. Now, there's a greater prophecy in all of this story. I'll mention it briefly. That... Um, When it comes to the end of the age, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And many people have said before that... It's when it's time to leave, when it's time to go into tribulation or we're looking for the return of the Lord, the greater exodus, that we're not going to just get zapped out. We're not going to go by way of the Philistines, the easy way, even though it's near. What we're going to do is we're going to have a wilderness experience and that with the first place that we go to at that time is Sukkot. There's a prophecy that all ties into this, that, that you can tie the Egyptian exodus to the greater exodus. And those are things that will take place. The next t- uh, location that they went is to a location called Atham. And this is where they first, for the first time, saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the children of Israel. Now, what is this pillar? There's a couple of things going on here. Um, one, why a pillar? Why is that a symbol of God's presence in the camp? Well, um, in doing a little bit more study... Pillars were something that in the ancient times people they built, they erected to gods, to royalty, to showing something that is that is great, tall, powerful. And so God is continuing to prove his power over. A man-made God or tradition or something that he's a pillar, that he is this great pillar of fire that anyone who else might look up to the, the kings of Egypt who built temples with great pillars, that this symbol was very impactful not to anyone in the ancient times knowing what a pillar represented. The rabbis say about this pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud, is that this was, the rabbis will actually say this, that this was the messenger of God or the guardian of Israel. And in deeper uh, Jewish studies, you might have heard the term Metatron, that this was, in the rabbis' minds, this is what this pillar represented. Now, to us who are messianic, we know and we can see the representation of, the, of this being the presence of Yeshua in the camp and in the camp of Israel. That this pillar of fire is, where have we seen this pillar of fire before? Well, we saw a burning bush that was on fire and spoke to Moses. And we will see a mountain that is on fire that will give the law and the covenant. And we also remember a pillar of fire in Genesis 15 that walked in the pieces that made covenant with Abraham. So this is all being tied back together. um, That this is a, a very important symbol of God and his presence throughout all of scripture. So they're led by a pillar of fire. They then are led to the sea. They come to a place called Roth, which means the mouth of gorges, or that there was like a, the location was very confining um, of this location where they ended up. So they end up in the sea. And there's a lot of theories about where the crossing of the Red Sea uh, is. There's a, there's a great deal of people who've done lots of study, whether it was uh, in truly what we call the Red Sea today, Or there's a lot more people that are of the opinion that they crossed at the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, There's a location that's been a lot of study and a lot of things going on. If you look it up called Nueva, Nueva, Egypt, that there's a beach... And there is an underwater natural land bridge that crosses from Nueva Beach across to Saudi Arabia. And you can go into deeper study and you can look into all different kinds of people's theories of the Exodus, which I don't have time to go into today. Um, But needless to say, there's a great deal of study of exactly where the crossing of the Red Sea took place. And we don't even know if that's the location either. Um, But if you are interested in that sort of thing, you definitely can pursue that. But what happens is they're going on the way of the wilderness. And then it says that they turn and go to Pihahiroth. And what happens after that is that Pharaoh, and there's Egyptians, and I'm sure there was others that came back and reported to Pharaoh what was going on with the children of Israel. They turned and went into the wilderness. So wherever they went, they went to a place where it wasn't on the path where they thought they were going. If they were leaving, Pharaoh then knew, and Pharaoh then had uh, the gumption to pursue after them knowing they're wandering aimlessly in the wilderness what's interesting though is that god tells moses at the beginning of chapter 14 to turn and up here like they were wandering in the wilderness and it says that i will harden pharaoh's heart and will he will pursue pursue them and that god will gain honor over pharaoh and over his army That God has made himself known to all the Egyptians and he's made himself known to Pharaoh through all these plagues, but he still has not conquered the Egyptians through over his armies. And so this is all a part of God's plan that there is still a greater conquering that's going to take place over the Egyptians. So they come to the sea. Pharaoh, they approach and the children of Israel become afraid when they see the army of Pharaoh with 600 chariots, um, which that number is obviously is significant in its own deeper studies as well, that they come and then they say they, they, they cry out to, Pharaoh, to Moses and they said that there weren't enough graves in Egypt that they brought us out to the wilderness to die. This is going to begin the continuing narrative of the children of Israel complaining Grumbling. Um, I've said before that the children of Israel were very appropriately named the children of Israel because there was a great deal of immaturity in them to understand and follow what is the Lord doing through all of these stories, through all of these miracles and these judgments and these plagues and what 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 the Lord is doing. They don't understand it. And they have to go through an experience, a wilderness experience, so that they might learn and mature as a company of people. So very appropriately named the children of Israel. They're very afraid. They cry out to Moses. And Moses says one of the most poignant uh, phrases, gives me chills every time that I read it. From uh, Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever Then the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. One of the things also that for us who are believers in Yeshua, when it says stand still and see the salvation of the Lord in the Hebrew, it stand still and see the Yeshua of the Lord. The salvation, the, 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 the means in which that they will be saved, that there's a parallel to Yeshua, of course. And the Lord tells Moses, raise his hand in the staff over the sea. And we all have seen the, seen the images before of that a great breath of, of God's nostril blows the sea open and the wall, water becomes just two walls. And the children of Israel walk on dry ground with a wall on their left and a wall on their right. It also says that the pillar of cloud goes from the camp of Israel and goes behind them. And blocks the Egyptians from pursuing that this is that the pillar goes to battle for Israel, just as it says that the Lord will do will do the fighting, that peace will be upon you. So the children of Israel are moving through the dry ground. And what's believed is that this took place over the course of an evening an evening that the children of Israel walked across on dry ground with a wall of water on their left and to their right. And then it says that the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. Now, the question that I always wondered was, if the pillar was blocking them, when did the Egyptians follow after them? The scripture continues now at verse 24, where it says, "...it came to pass on the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians..." through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This took place while the Egyptians were in the midst of the sea. While they were pursuing them, you'd think um, Egyptians on chariots would be able to overtake a company of people moving on foot or by wagon or whatever it may be. But it says that the the Lord took the wheels off the chariots. He caused them to not be able to pursue. And this took place after they had already gone into the midst of the sea. That this was not some sort of battle that took place in the sea as some uh, Hollywood movies might want to make it to look like. But it was God delivering the children of Israel and then confusing and causing trouble for the Egyptians. And then God speaking to Moses Closing the water and killing every single one of the Egyptians. It says not one of them survived. Now, obviously, it's understood. It's not specifically stated, but it is believed and understood that Pharaoh himself did not perish in this. That Pharaoh remained alive. And so this was something where he had to live with the judgment of seeing God delivering uh, the children of Israel and causing judgment upon his army. One thing I also want to note, it's very interesting, here at the end of chapter 14 in the Exodus, it says this, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw a great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Why would it note that Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore? Well, this, I think, goes back to... If you remember Moses, that when he was drawn from the waters, and I've said before, why would they have let a Hebrew boy stay alive after the decree had gone out to cast them all into the river? And they knew he was Hebrew. Why would they let him live? Excuse me. What you have is you have all the gods of Egypt and a belief that there was was a, a thing where they would cast someone into the sea. And if the water god... who had mercy on them, then he would be delivered up out of the water. But if the water god performed judgment, then they would drown in the water. And what we have here, and if you remember the mixed multitude of the children of Israel that included Egyptians, that included other people of other beliefs and things like this, to see the Egyptians dead on the seashore would put no doubt in their mind that this was not some sort of deliverance of some water god. That this was the creator of heaven and earth. He is God Almighty and that he has performed this judgment. That this is not some sort of other salvation going on or taking place. That this was a a confirmation of God's power over the gods of Egypt. The next passage here in chapter 15, this is what's known as, uh, some call it the song of the sea. Others call it the first song of Moses. And this is the triumphant... Uh, celebration Of the children of Israel Of the deliverance through the Red Sea And by way of The uh, deliverance and the destruction Of Egypt This uh, passage Is very fascinating, there's been a lot of things Talking about it, my father will talk a little bit more In the Hoftor portion, that there's a parallel In the book of Judges to this song And What's interesting about this passage is this um, One, in the Hebrew It appears differently in its structure. It's like broken up into a brick pattern, the actual Hebrew text is. And in the scripture, it appears as two walls, two almost like brick walls. And I think there's a parallel there to talking about the children of Israel walked and there were two walls on their left and to their right. And so that then when this is done by the scribes in the Hebrew scripture, that there are what appears to be these walls and this triumphant Uh, thing is as you're singing this song or reading this poem that there's a um, remembrance of the walls of water that the children of Israel walked through. Also, I've heard it said that this song and its language that's in this poem is almost what I would call a capstone of God's, his restoration of honor and his power over all the gods of Egypt. Because we went through the plagues, yes, But then there were still other gods of Egypt. There were more than 10 that God is showing his judgment over. Well, he showed through this deliverance his power over the wind, over the storms, over the thunder, over the water of the sea, not just the water of the Nile, but the water of the sea. And so, again, this is the capstone of. ...of God's judgment upon all other gods of Egypt. It's the God that delivered the children of Israel. It is not the, God, the thunder God that blew the water open. It's not the God of the sea that spread out the water and killed all the Egyptians. It's not any other God. It's not Baal. It's not any other uh, man-made created name or God. It is the almighty creator of heaven and earth that made this deliverance. I've also heard it said, there's a tradition, this song of Moses... And this triumphant um, uh, restoration of honor of the Lord is said by uh, in Judaism uh, many other times in other holidays and in other scripture, and it's traditional that when it's read, it's read all the way through in its entirety without ceasing. It's a it's almost like a prayer and a praise of the Lord, and that there's a tradition in which that you don't cease as you're reading that. So one of the things I do want to do is I do want to read this passage. And I want you to hear and I want you to take in the power of God and his deliverance as we read this passage of scripture. So now uh, Exodus chapter 15, excuse me, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him my father's my father's God and I will exalt him The Lord is a man of war the Lord is his name Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea his chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea the depths have covered them they sank to the bottom like a stone Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the water was gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them in your in your strength and your holy to your holy habitation. The the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia, and the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Cana, Canaan, will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made. For your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh, went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Amen. You can hear the power and the wonderful glory of the Lord and that he will make himself known not only from this point forward, to the other people of the land and the people of the land of Canaan. But through the destruction of Egypt. Very powerful, very powerful words. And you've heard many of these songs before. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. You also may have heard the michmoka in there. Who is like the Lord that we say on a very regular basis through some of the cantations and the blessings. And so um, what we do is we try to capture some of that glory that took place in this miracle at times when these other songs and prayers are said. What continues after this, after the deliverance through the rest of our uh, Torah portion here, a couple of different stories. One, there's the story of the waters of Marah, where the children of Israel, they explored into the wilderness and they looked for water. They couldn't find any, but they did find some water at this place called Marah, but the water was bitter. So the children of Israel grumbled and God gave a miracle to Moses to put a find a tree or a branch, if you will, put it into the water and the water became sweet. And that this was one of the very first tests of the wilderness. And this is one of the things that will is a narrative that will continue. Even after this glorious deliverance by the Lord. Through all of these things that took place. We still have the children of Israel. And this will be a continuing story through the rest of our following of the Torah portions. Of the children of Israel grumbling, complaining. And that they're still not understanding the true deliverance that has taken place. Many other stories uh, that continue on from this place and at this time, um, needless to say, the Lord at this time in these first couple of uh, stages that they go, the Lord is showing mercy upon them. He they're complaining and he's giving them what they're desiring through some of these stories. Later on, they will grumble and complain for the same thing in which greater judgment will take place the second time through. In the rest of our tour portion, we'll have the story of them desiring meat, and that quail will land in the um, in the camp of Israel, and they'll eat meat. But then later on, there'll be another story where they'll demand meat again. Yet when they eat meat that time, there will be a great judgment. And so we have this sort of this story, this narrative of this first initial time in which God is working with the children of Israel to teach them a lesson, to test them through um, hardships. And then if they learn their lesson, then they won't be judged later. But in through the story of the Exodus, they don't learn their lesson and they're judged at later times. There's a greater story and there's a greater um, theme going on that we can take to heart here as believers in the Lord. And this is one of the things that I've noticed here that he us modern day believers, when we come into faith and we then become saved, if you will. Into a belief of Yeshua the Messiah and that we we believe that God has saved us and his sacrifice has saved us from our sins and from sudden destruction. After that, then what happens? What happens is, is everything good? Is everything wonderful and life is suddenly then easy after you come into faith and start walking in a moral and upright way before the Lord? Many people will say no. Sometimes things get harder. Challenges. You almost question, will God meet your needs After you take a place, after you've taken that step and you've been saved, then will the Lord meet your needs. The Lord tests you. He wants you to not fall away from the faith that once you have professed a belief in him, that you're going to stay with him, that you're going to continue to believe in him. And this is what you can see in some of these tests that take place. Here in chapter 16 of Exodus, this is where we hear and we learn about the manna. Also in this passage is the quail, but we learn about the manna, the bread from heaven. That is an amazing miracle That um, it's so interesting if you go in and you read it. And some of the things that I didn't necessarily take to heart and realize sometimes as I was reading about the manna, as I was studying for this portion, the manna appeared on the ground in the morning. And they went and they went and gathered it up. And they were supposed to gather whatever they could eat for the day for each person. And that when the sun came up, the manna itself melted. It then, whatever wasn't gathered in the morning would then be, would then disappear. So you couldn't go back in the day and be like, oh, well, I think I'm going to go get a little bit more or I think I need a little bit more. They were instructed to gather what they needed for each day. And then they were not to leave any of it around until morning in their homes, in their tents, wherever, wherever they were, because the next morning, if they were to eat all of it, and it says, but they children of Israel didn't believe that. So when they kept it over, it then was infested with worms and it smelled the next morning if they had kept any over in the morning. However, on the sixth day of the week prior to Sabbath, they were supposed to gather a double portion of manna, not gather it on the Sabbath. But any that was left over from the sixth day to the seventh day didn't spoil. It was still good until uh, until Sabbath. So you, you have this miracle here. But if you think about it here, this is another lesson that we can take to heart as well. The children of Israel had to, by faith, believe that that manna was going to be there on the ground every day the next morning. They were commanded to eat it all. You're in your tents, you, uh, our natural human instinct is to save a little bit. Make sure that we have enough for the next day so that, you know, try, yes, I trust the Lord, but, but I want to make sure that I have enough and that I'm going to ration it out a little bit. The children of Israel couldn't do that because it spoiled the next day. They had to, by faith, every single day, go eat all of it the, from their homes and believe by faith that the God would feed them the next day and that it would be there. Would we have the strength to follow that and walk by faith every day in that way, in that manner? Some of us maybe, some of us maybe not. But it's something to think about when you, you think about this daily bread, which that phrase is tied to uh, the Lord's Prayer that we're supposed to pray as well. That give us this day our daily bread, that we have the faith that the Father will continue to lead us, guide us. Uh, my time is running short, so what I do want to do is I want to cover what happens with the rest of our Torah portion here um, that continues through the rest of chapter 17 of Exodus. We have a couple of stories here. This is where they come to a place called Rephidim. They pass through the wilderness of Sin. Um, and he, it's at this place that they contend with the with Moses, and they said that they are thirsty and they desire water. This is where the Lord calls Moses, tells him to strike the rock and out came forth an abundance of water. Um, there's a great um, archaeological find um, that you can do if you look up Jim and Penny Caldwell. They found this place over in Saudi Arabia where there is a rock that is sticking up out of the wilderness that's split down the middle. And there's water erosion all around it. And they believe and I, I believe that they have found this actual rock that was struck that a great amount of water. You're thinking about the large company that Israel was. Great amount of water was needed to water the, the children of Israel. And so you can look that up uh, yourself if you'd like. Um, And at this place, though, they get they get this water and that there's a great deal of um, uh, things tied to Yeshua, obviously him being the rock of our salvation and that he. Water came forth from him, water and blood at his sacrifice. And so whenever you see this thing about a rock or a stone, those of us that are believers always tie and, and, and make the thought to Yeshua. And this story continues here. And there's also a parallel passage here uh, that I want to remind you of also. First Corinthians uh, in chapter 10, where it talks about be mindful of this, brethren, that all the children of Israel ate the same spiritual meat, drank the same spiritual drink, and the water from the rock, that that was Messiah. It says that, and there's almost a connection here to this entire Torah portion here, where they ate meat, where they ate bread, where they were all delivered through the sea, and that in concluding of this Torah portion here, they drank the water from the rock. Our last passage here in our Torah portion here is... um, The story in which Amalek comes while they're at Rephidim. Amalek comes and fights and attacks the children of Israel. One of the things that I thought just naturally, the the Amalekites went and attacked Israel because water and food was hard to come by in the wilderness. Suddenly all of these things are taking place and Israel has food, has water. The Amalekites gain up the gumption to go and attack Israel. There's maybe a natural... um, uh reaction there as to why this attack took place at this particular time and we have a great miracle and kind of a hidden miracle it's not talked about as much um amongst other teachers and but some people are aware of this story and it's an amazing story joshua got up the army of israel and went and attacked the amalekites and they fought all through the day and through the night and what it was was moses had to raise up his hands and as his hands were raised, Israel prevailed over Amalek. But as his hands came down, Amalek began to prevail. Over Israel, So we have this amazing story and this miracle of Moses raising his hands all through the night and that his brother Aaron and also a man named her helped to support his arms so that they could be raised through the course of the entire battle. It also says they took a stone and supported it under him. And so we have this amazing picture that we can think in our minds that we have Moses. This Messiah like figure standing on a mountain being supported with two man men on each side supported by the rock and his arms are raised. His arms became heavy and that they, he probably weren't straight up. They were probably out. And so you have this man on a mountain standing here with his arms spread like this through the course of this battle. We talk all the time about how, uh, Yeshua was raised up as Moses' staff in the wilderness. But we have this other story and this amazing image in our minds of Moses standing there in a crucifixion pose, if you will, through the course of this in this small little story that there's amazing parallel to the sacrifice of Yeshua in what took place here. That through this, through Moses doing this, there was a great victory for the children of Israel, even at this place, Moses built an altar. And he called the name of this place um, the name. The meaning of it is the Lord is my banner. Is the, what he called this place um, after they had a great war and a victory over the Amalekites. The last thing I want to say is this: is that um, the Lord is my banner. The word banner, then the Hebrew, is a word called nes or nes, if you will, and it's a standard or something that is raised up. And the Hebrew in there is formed from the Hebrew letter Nun and the Hebrew letter Samech. Nun meaning life. samach mean support or standard. And so here when you say the Lord is my banner, it's this—it's something that stands out before the Lord, before the people. And so we have this amazing uh, connection to this Hebrew word uh, nace or standard. And it's the same word that's used when uh, Moses makes the bronze serpent in the book of Numbers. And raises up a standard for them to see and live. It's the same name of this standard or in the Hebrew, a banner before the Lord. And so here we have amazing stories of the Lord delivering the children of Israel. And then what he does after is just as important as well that he meets their needs and he's testing them and he's trying to train them up before they come into covenant with him. And in the next week's portion, we'll have the Ten Commandments and we'll have the beginning of the children of Israel arriving at Mount Sinai. And so it's amazing to see the Lord is so good to the children of Israel as he led them in the things that he's doing with them, even after saving them. There's then a greater story. And uh, um, the, the children of Israel and the life of Israel, that he continues to walk with them, meet their needs. And that's something that we can take to heart as well. That even after we say we've been saved, even after we've accepted uh, the, the salvation of the Lord and we now walk uprightly before the Lord in a moral and upright way, there's more to the story after that. That's not the end. That's the beginning. Of walking with the Lord and him meeting your needs and you entering into a true covenant relationship with him and it's the same pattern through the children of Israel and the Exodus that we experience in our own personal spiritual lives as we walk with the Lord each day amen amen Amen. let us pray Heavenly Father we thank you Lord for this passage of Scripture we thank you Lord for your deliverance of the children of Israel and everything that you did for them and for meeting their needs Father, I pray that you would give us the faith that we need to walk by faith daily to know that you will meet our needs daily, Lord, that we would um, continue uh, to use what you've done for us. Give us the things that we have needed and that we use them to the fullest, Lord, and trust that the next day, Lord, you will be with us again, that you will deliver us again, that you will uh, meet our needs again. Give us this day our daily bread, Father, and thank you, Lord, from the water from the rock. From the rock of our salvation, Lord, and the life that you have given to us, Lord. And for the signs and the symbols and the parallels, Lord, to our spiritual walk in all the stories of old through Moses and the Exodus. Father, I pray that we would take them to heart and we would be encouraged by them in all the things that we do as we walk daily in our spiritual lives with you. So we thank you, Lord, for the Sabbath. We thank you, Lord, for the Torah portions. And we thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction. I pray uh, for wonderful blessings as we continue through the stories of the Exodus uh, here this year. So we love you. We bless you. We thank you, for, Lord, for uh, being our leader, our salvation, and for being our banner. So thank you, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
1: Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat
0: Shalom. All right. If you would turn in your Bibles, uh, please go to the book of Judges, to chapter 4. And our portion that goes along with Bashalach uh, that Ephraim just shared with us from the Torah portion is this passage that begins at chapter 4 and verse 4 for it. Now, just to everybody will get the connection so we understand why is this passage Why has it been selected to be a parallel passage to go with the passage from the Torah? Uh, Just to remind everybody, the passage from the Torah told us about the children of Israel making their way out of Egypt, coming to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's chariots coming after them to do battle with them. God opens the sea up. Uh, The people go across on dry land. They escape from uh, Egypt. Literally, that's the salvation uh, of the children of Israel at that point. From the Egyptians and their chariots and their army and then the chariots come in the waters close and uh, There's a great victory uh, Pharaoh's chariots are destroyed and as a result on the other side Why there's a great song of deliverance that is sung uh, called the song of Moses and so Ephraim went into and shared with us that basic story the crossing the Red Sea um, It's one of the most powerful uh, miracles that we have described for us in the scriptures a very powerful story it's literally the salvation of the whole nation of israel and the birth uh, of the nation because from that point forward god will begin to organize the children of israel into leadership take them to the mountain will give them the torah begin to train and teach them to be his people now this passage uh, is uh, right off the bat is a parallel passage because we're in the time of the judges and just to remind everybody about this is after Joshua and the sons of Israel who crossed the Jordan came in and, and and the conquest of the land. There was many battles and they conquered the inhabitants of the land and you can read all about that in the book of Joshua. And now this is the book of Judges, and this is the time frame of what happened to the tribes, what happened to Israel living in the land after Joshua uh, had passed. And if you read through this, there's a whole series of stories, uh, because at that point there's like no central element uh, to the different tribes. The tribes are in their tribal lands. Uh, and there's still a lot of, uh, Gentile neighbors. Uh, there's still Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Jebusites and all these people that they had, had the conquest of the land, but there's still remnant elements of those folks, um, still existing in and around all of the promised land, what we call the land of Israel today. And, and at the edges, the Moabites are still around, you know, and things. And every once in a while, and in fact, that's what the book of Judges is telling us about, that every once in a while the children of Israel in some of the tribes in different regions, they would fall prey to assimilating with those peoples too much. They would take on their idols instead of sticking with the Lord. They would forget the Lord, and then troubles would come uh, to them. And when troubles would come, they would, various elements, they would mount up their army and these little city kings and, and that had armies and so forth, they would go rampaging over and hassling all the tribes of Israel, and it was, it was trouble. And essentially, what this story is telling us about is kind of leads up to there came a particular time when uh, that the only thing that we ever had close to any kind of leadership at a, at a national level is suddenly we have this lady who appears. Her name is Deborah. And she is living in the hill country of the tribal lands of Ephraim. And so various people would be coming to her, seeking her for counsel. And that's kind of the hub, uh, if you will, of kind of what's going on with Israel, trying to keep track of what's all the different things, all the conflicts that are going on, and things like that. And the book of Judges is how did God continue to raise up uh, these people to be judges, to be leaders, to be counsel to the various tribes through this period of time before we get to the time of Samuel the prophet and the kings, before we ever got to King Saul. What's what's going on with Israel during that time frame? Well, there's this one Canaanite king that lives up in the northern Areas of uh, the city where he's at is Hazor. It's a very famous city, ancient city. In fact, you can go to the ruins, ruins when you're visiting Israel. You can go to the ruins of Hazor uh, you know, and actually see this great Canaanite city. And uh, he began to harass uh, some of the elements of the northern tribes. And so there comes a time when Deborah, and she's actually called a prophetess at this point, where Deborah is given a word from the Lord that she is to call for uh, a a general by the name of Barak Barak, and to bring his forces and that they're going to deal with this, this king up there and his commander, the commander of his forces is a guy named Sisera and what this commander had done very spectacular and this is the reason why the story ties into our Torah portion, he apparently had put together a core of some 900 chariots, besides other foot troops and and so forth, 900 chariots. But these chariots were very special. They were made out of iron. So they were very heavy, very rugged chariots. And by the way, um, if you have ever studied anything about chariot warfare, um, there were two great theories about how to build chariots in those days uh, as a fighting force. One was, well, let's keep it real lightweight so the horse doesn't have to pull that much and, and we can go real fast. But they would get into combat and it was very easy to knock these chariots over. And by the way, if they made fast turns, the chariots would capsize and, and so forth. And then the new theory was, let's build a chariot that is heavy. That's very stable. That won't tip over. That, that uh, is, it gives a firm basis. And so it's a, it's the first technology we have where we're trying to make a tank. So he made chariots of iron, and now in that technology in that day, it's like you know he had 900 tanks, you know, to do warfare with. And so it was a very awesome military unit and he was harassing israel and what the lord gave deborah a plan on how to deal with this essentially the plan was very simple was that the the children of israel and they collected soldiers from different uh tribes up there the northern tribes they were going to go to a mountain called mount tabor now let me give you i don't have a map for you but i'm going to in your mind's eye let me kind of draw you the northern part of israel uh, up here on, on the, the coast, the Mediterranean coast, is um, a Haifa today. And that's where Mount Carmel is at. That's where Elijah the prophet operated. And then stretching in a southeasterly direction is a large valley. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. At the bottom of this valley is a place called Harmageddon. And so this is the gathering place for Armageddon, okay, that we hear about in the book of Revelation. At the far end of this, down to the south, is a place called Beit which is at the start of the Jordan River Valley. So you have up here at the Mediterranean coast, this big valley stretches across the north. And then you're in the Jordan River area, Jordan River Valley, where you go down. Now, at the top of this valley is a mountain called Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, if you recall from the New Testament, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where Yeshua went with his disciples up and they all saw him standing with Moses and Elijah, you know, together and saw them speaking. Okay, the disciples saw that. So Mount Tabor is called the Mount of Transfiguration and this valley is this huge open area. Now if you were to go to Israel today this valley when you get to see it from any one of those locations you can see it from up at Haifa you can see it at Armageddon you can be at or excuse me Mount Tabor you can be down at Armageddon or you can be all the way over the Jordan you'll see this valley and it's a very expansive flat area it is a tremendous agricultural area. And in fact, uh, in Israel, that's where they grow the bulk of their grains, wheat fields, and um, other kinds of things. Like It's a huge valley that has many farms and so forth. Beautiful, fertile ground. There's just a couple of little uh, creeks and so forth that go through it. It, It's just pretty much everything kind of channels the moisture into it from all the different mountains. And it's a great area to grow grain um there and but it's also a very flat place and it's an ideal place to have combat with chariots and part of the reason why that region of the land has been so important strategically is because it will big armies can come and do battle with each other napoleon when he saw this he said all the armies of the world could assemble in this one area and fight it out And it is a very large and expansive. And, of course, the book of Revelation says it's the gathering place for the militaries for the battle of Armageddon. It's the gathering place for it. Now, so here uh, Deborah gets this word from the Lord, uh, says to Barak, says, we got to get Sisera and the forces that are against us with his big chariots, his own chariots, The Lord has told me, let's take our forces and get on the high ground of Mount Tabor. Let's get on this mountain. And let's let Sisera come down from his location to do battle with us. Now, he's going to say to himself, this is the ideal place to do battle. Okay? Big open ground. i got my chariots. You guys come out there in the field. I don't care how many thousands of guys you got. My forces will outmaneuver you. I will defeat you, you know. So, and he gets sucked into this battle plan. However, the part that he didn't know about that the Lord set up was the Lord brought sufficient moisture into that area that these big, heavy iron chariots, <laughs> they rolled into that valley, started getting ready to do battle. And the next thing you know, those big, heavy chariots, they're sunk to the axles in mud. And by the way, if you've ever been a farmer uh, and if you've ever worked the harvest, one of the things that you know about when you go in to work the harvest, just get, you know, a half an inch of rain. I mean, just get a little bit of rain and you walk out and that ground that is ideal for growing grain. And so you will sink. You take a tractor in there, it'll sink combine in there? It sinks. We'll take a heavy iron chariot and guess what happens to it? It sinks. Well, if you have a whole bunch of chariots that are now stuck in the mud and can't move, they are not a fighting force anymore. They are at the mercy of of the other forces. Well, guess what happened in this battle? He got sucked in there, rode his chariots in there at a wild rampage, getting ready to t- attack them, got sunk to their axles, And the children of Israel scored a great victory. And with a much smaller force, defeated a greater force because they took away their main armament, their main battle force from it, completely destroyed their battle plan on how to fight. And there was a great victory uh, for the children of Israel. Well, as a result of this great victory over this enemy that had many chariots, uh, they proceeded to write this incredible song and just like the story of uh, Moses coming across with the children of israel from the red sea and they have a song of moses you know the horse and riders thrown into the sea that famous song in chapter five which is included in our portion and if you'll notice in your bible uh, how the indentation changes uh, on the text it's indicating to you that this is poetry that it, that in the hebrew language if you read it uh, in the hebrew it's a poetic verse. Well, this is actually the lyrics to a very long song. And it's basically telling the story about how um, Sisera was defeated. How his chariots were defeated, how he, he was actually killed. By the way, in this story, Cicero and his forces were so overrun that Sisera, the general for the Canaanite general, had to flee personally by himself. He had to actually escape from the rest of the soldiers. I mean, his life was, they were pursuing him. And he went to another place, a city that he thought would be safe for him. He was greeted, he was received. Uh, by this lady at this place and he convinced her to hide him to cover him up with these rugs and so forth so he could sleep and rest because he had been fleeing and so that uh, nobody could capture him and so forth well she had enough wits about it as a woman she kind of knew what was going on she knew what the political situation was she knew what uh, Cicero had been doing to all the different people she wasn't necessarily in agreement with that. I think she was actually very happy the children of Israel were defeating him. And so she welcomes him in, assures him that he's going to be fine, and proceeds to bed him down so he can sleep. And after he goes to sleep, she comes in with a tent peg and a hammer. And she puts that tent peg there by the, but he's laying on the side, puts it there at the temple of his head and goes plunk and puts that tent peg right through his brain right into the thing where he's at and he's dead then she goes outside and waits for the children of israel to show up hey i got something for you (laughs) and they come and there's here's the victory now the the irony of this is and 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 it's not uh, uh, lost at all here is uh, god used two women to utterly defeat a very powerful army and its leader. Two women were used by God to accomplish much. Now, the reason why this really stands out to us, and the reason why uh, this gets paired together with the story of crossing the Red Sea, part of it has to do with after the children of Israel were delivered by God with the Red Sea who is credited with celebrating and generating the song and the worship of God with this great victory it's Miriam it's the sister of Moses, it's not Moses or a guy that says oh let's worship the Lord it's a woman a woman is the one who's made motivated to let's worship the Lord, let's celebrate a great victory here and so Miriam is the one who took tambourines and all the ladies and they began to dance. Well, we in the Messianic movement, stop and think about this for a moment. Who's the ones taking the tambourines and who's the ones getting up and dancing at our worship services? It's the women. And, and I will tell you, as a Messianic teacher man, that is very important to have that element in our fellowships. And it dates, actually dates back to these ancient stories. That that really great victories, you know, in God, the ones where the whole community truly enjoys. Yes, it involves men, okay, but it also involves women. Women have a role in these great victories. And I'm not trying to uh, do a big thing here about, you know, uh, taking on... um, um, you know, fatherly traditions or trying to elevate women uh, more, and I'm not trying to be feminist or anything. I'm just telling you this is a fact. This is the way God sees us. A a man and a woman are seen by God as joint heirs in the grace of life. That the marriage of a man and woman are seen as a unit, as one. And what God would like to see as the community of Israel is that, that we all become one. We become a single unit. It's, it's individual tribes coming together. But it's all the elements of the tribes. And here God uses, to the, male, to the dismay of every chauvinist pig there is, God uses this woman, Deborah. You know, I remember as, as a kid this story, this biblical story, being a good Baptist, um they really struggled with this story you know women are not supposed to speak in the church i mean why did god do that you know that that kind of thing um and and what i'm trying to really say here is is that you know god is not hung up with the stuff that we're hung up with okay and we get really hung up over gender issues which is nonsense um uh, we are all created by God. We're spiritual creatures. I, I recognize there's some differences between men and women. Thank God there are those differences I might have. Uh, it works, by the way, better that way. Uh, but God doesn't have some sort of social, political, gender problem with this. Um, instead, he's looking at the whole, the benefit of all of Israel. Now, every guy gets smart, you know, in his marriage, realizes that his wife is truly a counterpart to him, is a real partner with him, and he doesn't lord it over her. If he's smart, he, he will figure this out. But yet at the same time, he recognizes there's certain roles and responsibilities I have that's slightly different from her. And, oh, by the way, God can turn right around and use her in a very special and significant way to, to have a role, too. There's nothing stopping him from doing that. And a wise man will recognize what God's doing, and 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 he doesn't lay his artificial set of rules on something. He'll allow God to do what God wants to do. In my particular case, I'll just briefly tell you my testimony. While I, a lot of people recognize, hey, you know, it's Monte Judah that did this line of land ministries thing. Hey, I got news for you. Yeah, I was there. I did a lot of things. But I'm telling you, my partner... My wife, Lynn, had tremendous responsibilities, and there was great tasks that she accomplished that had she not done them, I wouldn't have been able to do a blessed thing. Um, And by the way, she was doing that stuff before we had computers doing it. And keeping track of all that stuff. And, and so forth that we needed to do. And was was uh, administratively uh, undergirded and supported what the Lord was doing in my life. G- gave me the support foundation. You know, she has the spiritual gift of administration. And God's used her very powerfully in Lionel and Ministries. And anybody that gets around here and finds out about what this organization is about, you, they learn real quick how important she is uh, to be a part of what things are. Um, and... Honestly, um, I never had a problem with her assuming such a powerful role uh, in the ministry because I remembered this story. I remembered the contribution of Miriam. I remembered the contribution of Deborah. That a great victory came as a result of God working through Deborah to give the right counsel uh, and to set up the tactics for a strategic win against a very famed enemy. And another woman in another propitious place, you know, puts the crowning touch on it and kills the general personally. I mean, if you'd have told that story in advance and said, oh, this is what God will do, you'd go, what? God wouldn't do anything like that. He did. And by the way, this chapter 5 I should tell you about this particular piece of literature. I'm not going to read all the way through it. It's, it's a song. Um, this is the largest and considered to be the most eloquent in the Hebrew language, the most eloquent lyrical song in the entire Bible. That this song is a very impressive song with regard from the Hebrew point of view. Now, this is in competition with the whole book of Psalms, the original Song of Moses. This is the accolade that is placed on how this song tells the story, tells the great story. It essentially repeats, you know, all the things that are going on with it. Um, I'm going to refer to, as I conclude here, I want to refer to the Hertz Humash. Uh, that on this passage with this hop tour they've been giving there's a concluding uh, comment that's made here which is um has become a a real principle of wisdom that comes from this whole thing and i want to share this last item this is from the sages of israel this is their conclusion of this whole matter all that was involved, Deborah being involved, the other woman being involved, the, the music here, the great victory, the battle, the strategic goals, what, what was accomplished, and so forth. And they um, they have this final comment on on our whole portion where it says, and this is from the Hertz Mosh, page 287. If you have one of those, you can look it up. Uh, the rabbis base the following teaching on this verse. Whosoever does not persecute them that persecute him, whosoever that takes an offense in silence, he who does good for its own sake, he who is cheerful under his sufferings, they are the friends of God. And of them, Scripture says, they that love him shall be as the sun when he goes forth in his might. That's a verse from the song. That the meaning of this verse, they that love him shall be as the Son when he goes forth in his might. They say what that verse is really trying to espouse is when you, as a believer, are offended, but you remain silent. You could have retaliated. When someone does wrong to you, persecutes you, and you take the offense and you remain in silence with it you kind of if i could use a more guttural you kind of suck it up you just get internally tough and and basically you take the thing i i don't care what you're what you're trying to do to me um you know I, i can outlast you and i don't have to retaliate against you um the reason why I thought that was so interesting is because we are living today in a time in our country where if somebody offends somebody, somebody's got to retaliate. Somebody's got to pop off back at him. And early in my ministry, one of the things that I learned very quickly, and I'm glad that I did learn it very quickly, was I have a lot of critics and the Lord just basically said, was, turn around, leave them in the dust, and go do good. Just don't, don't worry about what they say. Don't worry about how they offend you. Don't worry about the false things they say about you. Don't worry about them being vicious and hostile and offensive. Just, just ignore it. Just press on doing what I want you to do. And basically the analogy is, when you do that, You become the might of the sunshine. (laughs) The sun is a pretty powerful thing. Just walk out there without your sunglasses on. You, (laughs) It's a pretty powerful thing. You know, let your light so shine that God is then praised because of you. And that person is called, according to this, the friend of God. The Friend of God. What what a nice title. Wouldn't you like to have that on your spiritual resume when you have to go to give an account to the Lord? Oh, you were known as the Friend of God. That would that would be good. That would be very good. That's part of the spiritual lessons that we have that come out of this uh, particular Haftor portion as it ties back in to the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom.
1: Llevaré a Jaja. Adonaré.
6: Bijuneja, Isadona, Pana,
3: Eleja, Beasel, Leja, Leja,
6: Shalom, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom.